Okay, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. We're going to continue our summer series on the parables this morning. And as I've said before, we are approaching the parables and we're spending probably the majority of our time looking at the our story, my story application because of the nature of these of these uh, messages. However, we cannot do that in fairness and effectively without remembering that the our story and my story application that we are going to seek is going to be different than the original intent of these parables because the context of these parables, they're, they're often referred to as the parables of the kingdom. And we have to remember, especially as Christians, especially because a lot of us, the, the Bible is confusing because we were taught to read it as though it was a text written for Christians. We have to remember the context in which it was written. And much of the Bible, well, all, none of the Bible was written to us. Now, it was written for us, and it has tremendous value in understanding the heart of God, the purpose of God, but it is a mistake to read it as though it was God's love letter to contemporary Christians, because that's actually not the original intent of the scriptures. They are written within a context for a reason. And in this context, this parable we're going to look at, which is the parable of what Jesus is doing in this parable is, again, remember, Jesus' mission wasn't to the Gentiles. The mission of his church was to the Gentiles. But Jesus himself even said, he came for the house of Israel. He is Israel's Messiah, announcing the incoming, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and reminding them all the hope and the prophecies that you find throughout the Old Testament prophets are being fulfilled in the incarnation of Jesus as God's Messiah. And he's coming to his people, beckoning them to prepare and get ready for the new thing that had been long promised ages ago was breaking into the world. God was establishing a new covenant. He's the, the, the new covenant that's going to be an inclusive covenant for all of humanity, not an exclusive covenant that deals primarily with one ethnic group, but rather thou in the fullness of time for God's plan to be made manifest is here in the coming of the person and the work of Jesus, and he's announcing to Israel, now is the time. The kingdom of God is here. It is among you. It is within you. Now is the time to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And he's calling them to the new thing that God is doing while at the same time warning them of the consequences of refusing to yield to what God is doing in their time and place. Primarily, he is phasing out, they're experiencing the apocalypse of the old covenant world. It has now been fulfilled and it is now obsolete because it's been fulfilled and we're moving into a new era called the new covenant. And Jesus is warning them, if you refuse to yield to what God is doing and you cling to the old, then when it passes away, you will pass away with it, which we know from history is exactly what happened from scores of Jews of the first Jews of the first century, particularly those who sought refuge in the temple when it was raised to the ground by the Roman armies in 70 AD. 
And so what Jesus is doing with this parable is he's offering an explanation for why so many in Israel are not responding to his message. In fact, if you press the numbers in Jesus's parable, which I don't think you should do, I think we make huge interpretive mistakes when we try to press every single aspect of a parable rather than grasping the general idea that Jesus was communicating. But just for fun, if you look at the way he breaks up the parable, he's essentially saying, my mission will only be one-fourth successful. Only a fourth of the people are going to actually respond with soil that is good soil to receive the word of God. Three-fourths will resist what God is doing in their midst not because they don't have access to the same revelation, but because for whatever reason, the heart that's hearing the message is not a heart characterized by what Jesus is gonna call good soil. So he uses this in part as an explanation why in his generation, only a minority of his people are gonna respond. And then as we get on later on to the epistles, there's a more optimistic view of what Israel's future might look like, but that's for another time, place, and sermon. So I wanted to set that context because we are gonna, what we're gonna do is say, okay, we can see that. We can see this as an explanation for the first century Jewish people that Jesus was called to minister to. However, where do these principles transfer over, over time and space, 2,000 years later to this morning? How do we, as followers of Jesus, respond to the wisdom of the parable of the soils? And that's what we're gonna, we're gonna spend most of our time talking about this morning. I grew up, as you all know, right in the belt buckle of the Bible belt in the evangelical church. And I am grateful for that. I started my journey in this whole gig when I was about seven years old. So I, I, I was a product of immersion into evangelical subculture. That's what I wanted. That's what I longed for. That's where I felt safe. There were a lot of great benefits from that. I'm 100% convinced that my immersion into evangelical subculture saved me from the consequences of a lot of unwise and foolish decisions that I would have made without that support network. There are a few things, though, that did damage to my uh, psychological and emotional health and that did damage to properly understanding the spiritual wisdom of the gospel. One of the things that did damage, and I don't blame any individual, it's just what I, for whatever reason, I heard and, and, and gathered from my time submerged in that subculture, was that uh, following Jesus is primarily about just believing in Jesus. And so salvation was about affirming the truth of the gospel, and it was redefined. It wasn't the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached. It was the gospel of evangelical, individual, born-again salvation for the person. And, and that gospel is different than the one that Jesus, I would come to learn, was preaching in the gospels. And in that one, it was about primarily affirming the points of belief about the Christian faith. And then I was told, if you say with your mouth that you believe those things then that's gonna equal into you becoming a born again person. You're gonna be, we use the word saved or born again, which meant primarily the big good news is this. When you die, you get to go to heaven where life is gonna be good, 
big, big house with lots of food. And the more moral you are in this life, the bigger mansion you're gonna have in the next. Now, I don't know how that works with God wiping away every tear from every eye, but I was, I, I was convinced that I was going to be in the Club Med kind of neighborhood of, of heaven. And, and so, and, and, and we taught that the more moral good you do, the bigger crown you'll have, you'll have more jewel, jewels and crowns that you can present them at Jesus. So, so it became really this radically self-centered game as being as materialistic in the afterlife as I could possibly be. And a lot of that hope came from the limitations as being materialistic as I wanted to be in this life. So I really gave myself over to that. But over time, and if you study Jesus, what we realize is this, and this is the idea I want us to consider this morning. The gospel is not intended to elicit an affirmation. The gospel is intended to elicit a response. The gospel is not intended to merely elicit an affirmation with your mind of a belief system. The gospel is intended to elicit a response. And when we respond, we don't just respond with our mind and our beliefs. We respond with our mind, our emotions, our heart, our spirit, and with our body. We respond with our entire beings, not to the call to believe what a particular church says you have to believe to get into heaven, but we're to respond with our entire beings to the calling of Jesus, which is very simple. Follow me. That's it. Follow me. Wait, are there ABCs that I need to memorize so I can be born again? Jesus doesn't give any of those. He says, if you want to find salvation for your souls, follow me. And that will likely mean that you need to be aware of the other sources that you are following so that you can name them, deny them, turn in another direction and choose to proactively follow Jesus because the gospel is not intended to elicit an affirmation. It is intended to elicit a response. And so we begin the parable of the sower found in Luke chapter eight. We're gonna start in verse four. When a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell among the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So he's setting up an explanation. Why do some receive the message of the kingdom while others reject it? Well, according to the parable, it comes down to the soil or the quality of one's hearing. What Jesus emphasizes here is the soil itself. And the result, 
The resulting message is the soil of their heart was not ready to receive what God was doing. The soil of some of their hearts were not, wasn't ready to receive what God was doing in their midst. And therefore, the message did not bear fruit. So the emphasis is on the quality of the soil. He says, first of all, there's some that get thrown on the path and it says the birds come and, and scoop it up. And we're gonna look, because Jesus explains the parable in a few verses down, and we're gonna look at that in a moment. But what we're gonna basically see there is that, is that it says that the enemy creates resistance and it actually swipes the, the seed away. So, so they don't bear fruit. Then there is soil that is on the rock, but it's so shallow, it doesn't have any moisture. It springs up initially with great enthusiasm, but then it fades away very quickly. And then there is soil that bears fruit, and that fruit lasts a little bit longer, but it still isn't going to be good fruit because what happens is the weeds grow up with it and eventually choke it out. So there are three things essentially that Jesus is gonna say create obstacles for uh, the soil of our heart being in a healthy condition. And, and so one of them is, and we're gonna look at this, we'll, we'll tease this out, but I just wanna share it with you at the beginning. One of them is the inability to suffer. The other one is um, anxiety that is produced by trying to control and fix the circumstances of our lives. Or, and the number three, because our souls get comfortable and preoccupied with lustful pleasures that bring dullness to the soul. So these are the three obstacles that are a reality. And as we read the, the, the parables and we read Jesus' explanation, what I would suggest you consider is this. Because oftentimes when I've heard folks talk about this, uh, it was done in such a way that said, you know, basically you're all gonna fall into one of these categories. You know, you're either the shallow soil or you're the rocky soil or you're the good soil, this section over here. And, um, and so the idea, and so, so again, as is often in religion that has no faith in the work of the Holy Spirit, we have to add the human element of shame and guilt. And so the idea is like, you know, what kind of soil are you? Are you good soil? Are you shallow soil? Are you rocky soil? Are you good soil? I would suggest that we read it a little differently, not as categories of people, but as seasons that we all rotate through. Because there have been plenty of times I've been shallow soil. And I wish it was a progression, you know? Shallow, you get a second chance, you grow a little bit, now you're rocky soil, but then you get choked out, then you try back again, and finally you ascend to good soil. But the truth is in my life, I can go from shallow to good, back around to shallow, hang out in choking out the fruit, back to shallow, luckily back up to some good soil. I mean, it is a seasonal reality. So one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this parable is that it has been, become a real life source of my own spiritual growth and development because at any given time, whenever I'm engaging in the prayer of examination and creating some space for the Holy Spirit to reveal some things about my heart that my ego has blinded me to, I often go back to this as a template and say, Holy Spirit, what is the condition of the soil of my heart right now in this season? I may think I'm at hundredfold when I'm really right at the beginning of shallow. It just, at the beginning of shallow, it looks like a hundredfold, right? Quick fruit that bears up. 
And so I need help in discerning in any given season the condition of my heart. Where exactly is that soil in comparison to whether or not I'm being led by the spirit or by the woundedness and brokenness of my own ego? So then there's a little interlude before Jesus explains the parable. And he says the purpose of parables, which again, might be a little challenging for us because we just assume that all God's truth is for all God's people at all God's time. But that is not true. Sometimes there's wisdom of God that we should be speaking and there's also time to be discerning and to be silent. Jesus called it, don't cast your curls before swine. Now, because of the imagery, we tend to interpret that very negatively. Ah, they didn't hear the message because they're swine. You the piggies, pig, 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 suey. That's why you can't hear the message of the gospel. That's not what Jesus is doing. Pearls are not effective and useful for pigs. So there is time to be discerning. And that's what the parables are all about because they are meant to be told in such a way that the heart that is ready can respond and the heart that isn't simply can't see the truth at that time. So he says here in verse nine, and when his disciples ask him what his parable meant, he said, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others, they are in parables. So that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand, which is a quote from the prophet of Isaiah in speaking to the prophets about the messages they're bringing to ancient Israel. So the parables actually serve two functions that are in some ways on the surface opposed to one another. Number one, Jesus spoke in parables to reveal truth and he spoke in parables, parables to conceal truth. So they're intended both to reveal and to conceal according to where the hearer is in their own health and responsiveness. Because this is why the Christian religion will never be an adequate substitute for following Jesus. It can empower and help you in your goal to follow Jesus. But if you see participation in the organized Christian religion as the path to salvation that Jesus was bringing, you might possibly be deceived about the message that Jesus was proclaiming. Because religious activity will never replace the beauty and the life transformation that comes from following Jesus. It's a very poor substitute. And so therefore, if my heart is to reinforce my man-centered religious ideology or denominational dogma, then I might see the parables and the truth is concealed to me because I'm interpreting them in the way they empower the power structure that I've given myself to. And you're gonna see this play out in the gospels. If, however, my heart is to be grateful for the freedom of organized expression of worship 
However, recognize that the goal is not primarily my participation there. If it doesn't translate into a lifestyle of following Jesus, then the truth of the scripture might be concealed to me. But when my heart is receptive and ready to learn the truth so that I can live it as an expression of faithfully following Jesus, then the parables do not conceal truth. They reveal truth. But the focus of my heart has an impact on the truth that I'm able to see. Unless the mission of God reshapes a person's worldview, there is much about the message of Jesus that simply cannot be understood. Because the gospel is not intended to elicit an affirmation. The gospel is intended to elicit a response. So then he goes into his exposition of the parable, not to the crowd, but to the smaller crowd that's gathered around him. Verse 11, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing, they fall away. And as for what fell among the, storms, the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. So there are three categories, but the third category can go one of two directions. They're either choked by the cares of life or they're choked for the pursuit of riches and pleasure and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. They are the ones who hold it fast, but here's the stipulation, in an honest and good heart. And bear fruit with patience. So now Jesus is explaining why his message is met with mixed response. Now, I don't have time to do this this morning, so all I'm going to do is present a little idea here, which I probably is not in keeping with good communication practices. But I do wanna insert an idea maybe for you just to put a pen in and maybe go back to later. Because what is interesting is this parable being spoken at this place in Luke's narrative is really quite fascinating. And I, again, I don't wanna push these applications too far, but I do think that they are worth pausing and considering. Because if you look at the responses to Jesus in chapters two through seven, the events that Luke has laid out in leading up to the moment when he's gonna present this parable, if you look at those responses, here's what is very interesting about what you'll find. Those in need because of their sin or because of their sickness or because they are possessed with evil spirits, 
They're the ones that tend to have good soil that actually respond to the authority and the liberation of Jesus. And as you look through there, those who are religious experts of the law often end up acting in ways that reveal their heart is characterized by bad soil. That's why Christianity as a support system for following Jesus is wonderful. Christian devotion to the religion as a substitute for following Jesus is absolutely dangerous to your soul. And it's boring as heck over time and gets impossible to continue to navigate without the presence of God in the soul of man through the presence of the Holy Spirit. So, so, so we see these differences. Three possible outcomes from hearing the word of Jesus. No growth, some growth, but no fruit. Or number three, growth and fruit bearing. Verse 12 says that in some instances, the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts and that they may not believe. Now, I think it's really important because again, this is an example of now if we wanted to rip the Bible out of context, I could just have a great meeting telling you all the secret tactics of defeating the devil that I've learned. You know, this is about spiritual warfare. This is about how to keep the devil from stealing the word of God from people's hearts. And we can pray this way and do this way. We can get in there and grab the devil by his goatee and yank him off. You know, all of these things that we go off on, that's an unhealthy way of reading the Bible. What we have to recognize is when Jesus tells this story, we are not told how this works. We're not told if this is a metaphor. We're not told if this means that the actual devil is coming and grabbing a seed from their heart as though the message became a literal seed. I mean, we know that this can't be literal, but we often try to apply it literally when it comes to the devil. We're not told how it works. We're not even told how to prevent it. We're simply given one of the reasons that the word doesn't produce a harvest of faith in that first generation of Jesus' people that were listening to their Messiah is because the adversary creates some sort of resistance and deceives them and blinds them to the message. Then 13 seems to refer to the testing of the trials or the persecution that takes place. Uh, because it says that when, uh, when it comes to a time of trial, they fade away. And this represents those who were just thrown on the stones that had no moisture. It brings up some initial growth, but there's no fruit and it falls away because there's no moisture there. Jesus goes on to say, when times of trial and testing come, they fall away. The kingdom of God will require a response from us that will call us to deny ourselves and make choices that challenge our flesh. We must understand that the call to follow Jesus is a life-affirming, life-giving call that reveals to us the path of life because it puts us on a lifestyle that represents the heart of God revealed in Christ. We do damage to our would-be converts when we present Jesus as a utility. He's something useful to fix something. That... If you follow Jesus, you'll fix your worry about where you're gonna fly away to when you die. 
that when you follow Jesus, I mean, when you become a Christian and learn the principles of biblical marriage, you'll save your marriage and you won't experience divorce. Some of us are even told if you follow the Christian religion in the way that our church has told you, you don't ever have to worry about being sick. You don't have to worry about losing a child prematurely. You don't have to worry about getting cancer before your time. It's like Jesus is presented as the way to solve all of these human problems. My friends, that's a mistake. You, you might follow Jesus, and for reasons beyond your control, you still lose your marriage. You, you might follow Jesus and find yourself in the unenviable position of standing before an infant grave. You might follow Jesus and contract a debilitating illness that plagues you the rest of your life. And that doesn't mean that you've done something wrong. It doesn't mean that God is judging you. It doesn't mean that God is against you. In fact, it might mean that you represent some of the very most faithful among us. Because even though life gave you every reason to turn away and to walk away, you continue to follow Jesus anyway. And your life is a profound testimony to the faithfulness of God. It wasn't necessarily a mistake or something, but we, especially when we're raising children in the faith, we have to realize that spiritual bypassing is a real problem among us. Trusting Jesus might not make your depression go away. I mean, you might just need to trust Jesus more, but you might need to trust Jesus and go to a doctor. You might need to trust Jesus and see a therapist. It may be even more simple than that. You might just need to trust Jesus and eat a sandwich. Because your problem isn't the devil, you're hangry and you're annoying all the rest of us. You might need to trust Jesus and take a nap. You might find that religion kept you so busy and exhausted that trusting Jesus more is never gonna affect the autoimmune damage that you've done to your body. And you need the Holy Spirit to empower you to be faithful to Jesus by saying no, taking a break, withdrawing, tending to your emotional, mental, and physical health. My friends, if we don't do this, what we put in its place is spiritual bypassing. Just trust Jesus more. I'll be praying for you, brother or sister. And that does tremendous damage because eventually we come to the conclusion that following Jesus and praying has no real practical benefit. How many of you have ever been there in one of those seasons? Just a few, just a little raising of the hand. Yeah, so that's what happens is that it, it, it's, it's shallow ground when we don't think seriously about what it means to respond to following Jesus. Then verse 14 seems to refer to security apart from God. The word, the word can be fruitless by creating anxiety because we have anxiety from being preoccupied with fixing our circumstances without reference to God or just learning to yield and surrender. 
The word can also be fruitless from the preoccupation that comes with orienting one's life around the pursuit and maintenance of stuff. Now, here's what's interesting. We have just a few minutes, and I'm going to go ahead and go on this little rabbit trail because I want to honor Luke and the women. Then we get ready. He says this contrast about the thorns making the word of God useless because of the desire for pleasures of riches. And he contrasts that with what just came in verses one, two, three. Because in verses one through three, Jesus illustrates, or Luke illustrates, a response of good soil when he mentions the women that were part of the first disciples of Christ. Look at verses uh, one through uh, three. Afterward, he was traveling from one town and village to another, preaching and telling the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary called Magdalene. Seven demons had come out of her. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod Steward, Susanna, and many others who were supporting them from their possessions. It's not anti-possession. It's recognizing that possessions are a gift to be used for the work of the kingdom of God. And the women that followed Jesus got it. They are an example of being free from the, the pursuit of wealth, choking out the word of God. The word of God was effective and they had wealth and they used it to support the work of the kingdom. And they're kind of highlighted here as the example of good soil. Jesus is creating the contrast between different kinds of hearers. Some believe for a while, some they experience resistance and they fall away, and some bear fruit. The ones that bear fruit, it's because of this reason. They hear and their hearing leads to faith, trust. That faith leads to a response. That response leads to a lifestyle of faithfulness and faithfulness produces fruit over time. It takes a little while. It doesn't happen instantly. But if we are faithful to follow Jesus, over time, you will not have to worry about strengthening your willpower so that you can become more virtuous. You won't have to worry about strengthening your willpower so you avoid sinfulness. You know what? that willpower will just manifest itself in the routine of following Jesus because it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's called self-control. You can't manufacture it. Only the Holy Spirit can. What you can do, as Paul says in, that, in Galatians 5, where he's talking about these ideas, is that you can keep in step with the Spirit. If you keep in step with the Spirit, which is your only job, it is the Spirit's responsibility to then to cause the fruit to, bring, to burst forth in your life. And so, faithfulness to following Jesus produces fruit over time. The gospel is not intended to merely elicit an affirmation. The gospel is intended to elicit a response. You see, my friends, the gospel is a way of life. Now, I know you know this goes against my basic nature because I'm not a life coach, I'm a death coach. But I will pause that for just a moment to remind us all that the gospel is a way of life, not a way to prepare for death. 
The gospel is a way of life, not primarily a way to prepare for death. And if we are called to follow Jesus primarily as a way to prepare for death and then obey the church, rather than being called to follow Jesus and obey Jesus and follow and, and, and obey the authority of the Holy Spirit flowing from within, that lifestyle gets very dull and powerless over time. But following the wild, intuitive direction of the Spirit never gets old because you can't plan it, you can't control it, you simply get the joy of yielding and being a vessel through whom God transforms the world. You don't simply become a churchgoer or a Christian. You become a living force of redemption and reconciliation in the world. And that, my friends, is the invitation, the high and noble calling that we've been given. So, as we close today, take a moment to clear out some space in your mind, your emotions. Take a moment to listen to the Spirit. Here is the question I want you to consider. Are you responding to the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart? Right now, today, are, are, are you even aware of it? Or has some sort of preoccupation caused you to even drift away from an awareness of the life of God in your soul through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit? Or are you responding to the work of the Spirit in your heart? Is there evidence of the fruit of the kingdom of God flourishing in your life? Not just bits here and there, but as you've walked with Jesus, can you see the fruit of the kingdom flourishing in your soul and in your life? If not, please hear me. I am not about to give you four tips for getting back into that place. In fact, I'm going to say, if not, the answer will not be found in trying harder. The answer is in being willing to examine the soil of your heart and to be honest about what's there. The honesty is what will set you free. You cannot do this alone. Remember, depending on the atmosphere of your heart, the wisdom of God can either be revealed or concealed to you. Therefore, it is critical that we pursue a lifestyle of spiritual formation. We must have a rhythm of life that allows for extended time in the presence of the Lord in which we engage in a spirit-led examination of our hearts. And if we'll make time for this, he is faithful to respond, to set us free, to heal us. But if we do the deep work, he doesn't just remove the habit. He heals the wound that made the sin a necessity in the first place. All that can religion can do is to try to empower you to stop the behavior. It cannot heal the wound in your soul. So your soul will look for relief somewhere else. But the Holy Spirit changes you by convicting you of the behavior to take you on a deeper journey to reveal the wound so that he can heal it. And when he heals the wound, the toxic behaviors fall to the wayside.
So take a moment this morning as we get ready to come to communion. Ask God to show you the condition of the soil of your heart. Here's my three tips. They're very simple. Ask God to show you the condition of the soil in your heart. Ask God to show you what you should do about it. And then as Nike says, just do it. Respond not to what some preacher, some book, some whatever says to you. Respond to what the Holy Spirit reveals to you. Don't we see, my friends, that God is for you. He's not trying to keep from you those things that are the key to your healing and wholeness. He wants to reveal those things to you. But he allows you to go through a process to where you come to him with humility, not because he needs it, but because humility is the virtue that opens up your ears to the spirit so that you can listen, you can respond, follow, keep in step with the spirit. He'll heal the wound in your soul. But it begins with you in a place of utter safety, knowing there's a father who loves you, who will not reject you, that everything you want to hide from him and that you've chosen to hide from yourself, he already sees. And he's moving with compassion to draw you out so that you can be made whole. Not on the hamster wheel of religion, but flourishing because you've been planted into the garden of the gospel of the kingdom of God.